Welcome to episode 232 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. I'm Brian Levin, and here we are with our third week of 2017 recap. We talked to so many people last year, and we wanted to take uh, the time to go back and, and pull out some of our favorite clips and some sections that we think were useful or helpful or funny or enjoyable in some way. Uh, and this is our, our third week of doing so. So we're doing it. So we're doing it. Um, before we get into this next segment of clips, we want to thank our friends at Reactor for making this episode possible. And that's spelled with a K. Reactor with a K is a product design studio. Uh, they're based in NYC. That stands for New York City. But they also have offices all around the world. Yeah, they're all over. And they are designing and building products and services for some of the most forward-thinking and innovative businesses and organizations in the world. That's everyone from Viacom to HBO, Supercell, all that stuff. But they're also making things for this really cool uh, customer that we like to call outer space. The thing above the stratosphere. The troposphere? The thing above the troposphere. The ionosphere? The thing above... I don't know how these spheres work. I'm just guessing. <laughs> uh, they're launching a satellite. Yeah, this uh, this product design agency is launching a satellite, uh, which is just one fun example of, of people thinking differently about what our role can be as designers, as product thinkers. Uh, how do we get code into space? What does that look like? Uh, so they're going to be working on that in 2018, as well as doing some you know more traditional work. They're working with Thin Air to design and build the next generation of in-flight entertainment systems and really think about what it means to be connected while you're flying on an airplane. Uh, So they're looking for people to come help them. They're looking for great designers, thinkers, product-minded folks. They want people from a wide area of backgrounds and contexts and skills. So they don't even want to like label this as a specific title or role that they're hiring for. They just want great people to come and work with them. Uh, to share their ambition, to share their their drive for working on innovative and exciting new projects. It's probably helpful if you know that the stratosphere is actually above the troposphere and below the mesosphere. Ah, but yes. I didn't. And also, the ionosphere isn't part of the atmosphere. So, <laughs> don't quote these things to them when you're going and applying. Go you study. Tell them how you know the atmosphere works. Go study the atmosphere. Wikipedia is convenient for this. And then apply at reactor.com slash careers. Again, that's reactor with a K. And to help improve their office atmosphere yes. with your body. With your body, heat, and warmth. Again, reactor.com slash careers. Tell them we sent you. Uh, go craft your dream role with them today. Reactor.com slash careers. Thanks so much, Reactor. And our first clip for this episode comes from episode 206 with our friend Mills Baker. He worked at Facebook. Now he's a design manager at Quora. And we talked a lot in this episode about uh, how filter bubbles work and how content life cycles work. (laughs) We talked a lot in this episode about like disseminating information and how content life cycles work. The the privilege of this kind of approach of like doing what you love, how people learn, how people solve problems. This is maybe my favorite episode of all time. We, We went for almost an extra hour and... It was so densely packed with good nuggets of information. I couldn't believe it. Like, I love this episode so much. Mills was a fantastic guest. So here's three clips. Actually, the first one is him talking about uh, kind of the idea of doing what you love. The next one is talking about news and content life cycles and the negative effects they have on people. And then the third one is about problem solving and the nature of knowledge. So here's Mills Baker from episode 206. I think we forget that most people in the world never even consider whether there might be a job that's meaningful to them. I certainly never did. 
I thought jobs were a thing that you just did in order to pay for the meaningful parts of your life, mm -hmm. namely your social life and your hobbies and artistic endeavors on the side. Um, after you're in Silicon Valley for a little while, you know, you start to find your work meaningful. And that's a luxury that I think is on the order of our salaries. I mean, that's a really extraordinary thing. I talk to my friends back home and they're obviously like pretty disaffected and bored and, you know, their jobs don't mean anything to them. And that's par. So um, this is where like the do what you love thing, like that yes, statement is yes. so it's alien. Yeah, it's very based on a set of privileges that most people just never consider. Absolutely. I never even thought about what I loved. <laughs> because, you know, what would that matter? I just do what I like to do in my spare time. You know, I, no I, one's going to pay me to drink that much. <laughs> right, right. Um, and Unless it's on a TV show. <laughs> or, or to be a nerd. I, it's, it's, I'm often amused by, I had this like um, really, really favorable uh, exposure to the internet. I was on eWorld, uh, which was Apple's competitor to AOL in the mid 90s. And then I was on AOL, of course. And my high school computer teacher was Jonah Peretti, who went on to found Huffington what? Post and BuzzFeed. Yeah, he was a computer <laughs> science teacher in New Orleans. He taught this little computer class. He, he had us all make web pages with HTML, you know, and frames. And somehow I never once during any of this time thought, oh, well, I love this. I should do this. I thought, oh, I love this. I'm going to do this all the time after school or after a job. And uh, I never would have actually pursued a career in tech, I don't think, had Abby not just been like, you need to get to San Francisco and that it's hard not to fall into it here. Well, Mills, you just need to be more entrepreneurial. And just... I am. That's another thing. Actually, that's a really good job. What's funny I about that, that word is so much. I am Ugh. super not entrepreneurial and I'm not ambitious and I'm not scrappy. So I, I often do feel like I am the representative of all the ordinary pieces of shit in the world <laughs> who are not otherwise going to have a voice at, at these Rally tables. behind me. Right. In these super cool conference rooms with people who have like, you know, driven themselves and deliberately achieved certain things and learned and mastered skills. I don't think I've ever deliberately done anything in my life. I mean, I, I smoke cigarettes. You know, it's like you couldn't be more anathema, I don't feel like, to an optimization, health-oriented, fact-oriented culture than uh, you can by being a smoker. Because people go, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Isn't that awful? And aren't you disgusting? And I'm like, yeah, me and a lot of other people, what do you think about it? <laughs> Deal with it. Deal with it. Um, I'm going to go get on my Gulfstream. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you. Find the last place you can smoke. So uh, in answer to your question, I, you know, the fact that these things are designed out here, I think there's like, you know, the general answer I've, I've, I've heard that I found persuasive about why we tend to have these concentrations on the coast, right? It's just various kinds of network effects. It's so much easier. Um, I do think that it's an actual... Um, tragedy of sorts that I know many people who could have done these types of jobs and simply weren't close to them and didn't know about them. Um, so that is like one of the things that kind of uh, is is uh, motivating to me about the idea that like if Cora got good enough, I might have learned things that would have altered my own trajectory. So instead of coming to California when I was 30, maybe I would have come when I was 20. Um, I don't have any particular regrets, but um, I still have friends who are in New Orleans who I think could do these types of jobs, you know, could, could be software designers or engineers. Um, and it's just never somehow gotten on their radar. Well, one of the things that I want to like make sure I call it is most of the designers I know that live in Silicon Valley are not from Silicon right. Valley. Right. It's pretty rare. They're from around the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So everyone comes from around the world and ends up here, but we do end up, I think it's hard to paint in broad strokes, but we do end up with the bubbleness of this, right? Like this curated lifestyle, the way we use the internet, the perception we have, the way we use tools. It's like, it doesn't seem like it's where you're from that causes that. It seems like it's just this place. Totally. Um, John Fosberger. He had a, a reply on Quora uh, that was there for a long time about designers having a seat at the table. 
it didn't take off until like three years later mm-hmm. when someone randomly posted it on Twitter. I think it was like Julie Zhu or mm-hmm. uh, John Lax or someone like that. Yeah, I think John posted it. That's funny. I, I think that's super interesting. Like theoretically, that should never happen. Like that's not mm-hmm. that's not in our model of how content gets distributed. Right. But occasionally something just like comes out of nowhere and like it got super popular all of a sudden. Yeah. That's it. So the the fact that it exploded in popularity, I think you could point to that being like evidence of the initial distribution being bad. Um, the nice thing is, though, that, for example, if you're on Quora and we know you're interested in software design, we will reach all the way back to 2010. If there's something great about software design that we have a high degree of confidence you'll like, it's by somebody who we think you respect or someone whose answers you've liked in the past, or it's by somebody who whose answers are liked by people who also like answers that you like, so on and so forth, this kind of cohort, cohorting. Um, we can show it to you, and it's very often still valid. One of the things that really amuses me is that um, when we first started showing like older answers in feed, this was many years ago before I worked at Quora, so I feel relatively comfortable talking about it. Um, one of the things I saw users complain about the most is they'd go, ah, oh, I don't want to see some answer from 2011. And they would screen cap it. And it would be a question like, why was the Battle of Hastings fought in 1066? And I would always think, you want a newer take? What do you think? <laughs> I want the hottest take. What's the hot? Well, and so I am, su- this is a dynamic I'm super interested in. It's like humans are so oriented towards news. And I think there's a lot of plausible explanations for that. I also think news is the worst content category by far. I think almost anything else that you take in will be more edifying for you than news. And I think that if you look over the course of your life at the news you've taken in and just imagine that you'd never learned a single one of those things and then ask yourself what would be different now about the world or about you, it's probably a pretty strong indication for most people that the news is very rarely a vector of meaning or personal change. And people will cite examples. They'll say, well, so for example, what about, um, I, you know, uh, maybe they, they saw a news story about Katrina and it made them realize that the federal government wasn't doing things very well or something like that. Um, those do happen. But I think the truth is you would have heard about those things without the news. So when things are truly important, someone tells you about them. And there's this kind of nice filtering effect where someone will go, boy, I'm really upset about X, Y, or Z. In other words, we're actually already doing a pretty good job of disseminating relevant information to individuals in the world that existed before computers. Um, we're just not doing a very good job of disseminating much knowledge to them. It's like hard. You're geographically isolated. If there's not a good university or library, you don't know a mentor or professor or a lawyer or doctor, someone who can give you relevant things. But I'm like, I do sometimes fantasize. If I were to fantasize about my future to answer your question from way earlier, I would love to kill news as a primary source of distraction for contemporary device users. Fuck you, Jonah Peretti. I hope Jonah would take this in, in good spirits. Thanks for I the love career. Jonah. Peace out. <laughs> I do love Jonah. And I, actually, and I, I have enormous respect for BuzzFeed. Um, and I actually like media companies. I don't think that they should go away. Um, it's not so much that, like, for example, I don't have any problem with the New York Times. I think they're wonderful. It's more... Don't you think it's odd that everybody in America, everybody in the world wakes up and reads a bunch of news stories every day that are almost always recapitulations of ideas and beliefs that they already held? When was the last time you read a news story and your position on something changed? I often like to ask people, so what was the news story that turned you around on climate change? There wasn't one. What was the news story that turned you around on police violence? Probably 
Probably not a news story, right? Probably something else. And what's interesting is that that would suggest to me that you would really reduce the amount of your diet that's coming from news. Um, but it's so engaging. Every day I log back onto Twitter and check out that news. It's an ongoing story, right? Like it's some kind of saga of yeah. like how I see the world. Yeah, yeah. It connect it makes you feel connected, I think, mm-hmm. in a pretty illusory yeah. way to the superstructure of, of civilization. You have you something know? to complain about with other people. Yeah, things are going on right now, man. And uh, I'm staying on top of them. You know, I'm staying way on top of them. <laughs> I agree, but oh, fuck. Well, disagree because this is not a really deeply, like I haven't worked this takeout very deeply, so I would love to argue about it. It just makes me feel like, is is there inherent value in being informed? Even if the inf- being informed doesn't result in action. One of my favorite tweets of all time was from this Tibetan Lama I follow. And it Lama? Just, Wait, a Lama, like yeah. a... Like the Dalai Lama, not like but not the, oh yeah, shit, not like sorry. an alpaca. Sorry. Oh no, no, not okay. like a, right, not the animal. <laughs> sure. the, the, the spiritual leader. And oh he, boy, I sound dumb. And just popped <laughs> up in my in my timeline and said, "Be less informed. If you're not going to do something about it, don't bother knowing about it." Do you agree with that? I, well, I thought it was super provocative, and I have thought about it a great deal. Um, so you'll see periodically tweets about this, right? People will say, hey, look, I just want to make sure everybody knows um, we're in the midst of a, a, a like an outrageous catastrophe at the national political level, but it's okay to take time for yourself to enjoy something. You know, not every day has to be rage. Here's some puppies to look at. Have you seen any of these types of tweets? Basically encouraging Basically people. every day. Yeah. Right. So I think it's interesting because those tweets are obviously in reply to something, right? And, and th- they are in reply to this injunction that a good citizen stays informed about the news. And I love this quote about the news. I, I, I think it's Emerson or maybe it's Thoreau. One of them called the news the froth of scum intellectual. of the eternal. <laughs> All right. I, I just want to give a shout out to Mike Hudak, who is the guy who called me an intellectual. Um, So he called it the froth and scum of the eternal sea. That is, the news is what happens up here. And all of the real issues, all of the meaning is down here, right? And news is just permutations on things that you already think. Those were hand gestures for those of you inside the microphone. Oh, I'm sorry. So uh, one example would be like, you read about a school shooting. I assume both of you already have points of view and opinions about, say, for example, gun control or mental health treatment in the United States or how tough it is to be an adolescent and so on and so forth. Um, it's pretty unlikely that reading about a school shooting is going to change your points of view. I, I would bet. I mean, I would be really surprised, right? Um, I don't know too many people who do change their points of view in response to news, as a matter of fact. So what are you doing when you decide to read that extremely upsetting story about a, a school shooting? You're bringing yourself down, right? You're hurting. You're, you're feeling worse. Is it generating additional compassion? Maybe. I think it's actually a pretty good citizen sort of duty to think daily about the dead, as macabre as that sounds. Like, I do try to, like, if there's been a disaster, I do try to think about it. But to be honest, what would be my reasons for that? I would have only supernatural reasons for thinking that that was important, because it's clearly not doing anything effective or material for any of the people who are involved. Um, But sympathy does generate endorphins. Which is fucked up. Right. It's a little fucked up, right? So I think people get a real kick out of the news, mostly in gross ways. I think that the primary purpose of news is to be reminded that there are people out there who are super, super bad and and whom you are way better than. Um, And to feel that delightful rush of indignation against some awful other and the latest stupidity. Superiority. No, 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 no. Right. Because you already knew all of the things that you knew before you read the news today. Only now you know them again. Those people are even worse than you thought. And it turns out it's just great. So today I learned that Trump's watch is too small for his fat wrist. (laughs) Wait, is that true? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's great. (laughs) You're so informed now. I do feel informed. So and, and I should add the other big right pushback on this would be. Well, there are times when news matters. For example, let's say, uh, you know, 
during a war. You're a member of the resistance in occupied Europe. News matters, right? Um, so I actually don't have like any kind of settled system for this. Um, I read the news every single day, just like everybody else. Um, it almost always makes me unhappier than it does make me motivated to do something. I do the things that I do for my conscience, but um, broadly, I'm not sure the news has had as decisive an impact on me, say, as like the 50th best book I've read. Um, especially novels. So one thing that I really resent is the transition. You know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was all, everyone talked about how nobody in America read anymore and literacy was declining and television had ruined culture. We've been talking about that for like 200 years of some right? bullshit. And now look at where we live. Everyone reads all day, every day. No time in history could have anticipated this one in terms of how much text is consumed. Everybody just reads text all day. It's like astonishing. Do you feel like the culture's improved? Like, People are more intelligent. Somehow taking in information doesn't really seem to be doing anything. <laughs> well, to be fair, if if you scale the amount of information that the culture knows at a, a fairly even level, even if people are kind of dumb in how they use it, it, it still feels bad even if the amount of information taken in is higher, right? I think like that's right. Quality information. Like people can get technically smarter without making use of it. Oh, yeah. Right. And I think most of us feel that this happens. I mean, I feel this with myself, right? Like I catch myself all the time reading some book and then it's immediately gone, you know, and it's made no impact and I haven't improved at all. I usually assume that's because of the Louisiana thing is that literally because I, I work, you know, Abhinav, uh, the designer who I mentioned earlier, um, I, I watch Abhinav and Jen and, and, and people like them just kind of grow and grow and grow. And I, I just think, boy, that looks really exhausting. Mm. Um, but good for you, you know, way to go. So if not the news, then what? Well, that's a, that's a pretty tough question. Um, I think for you, what do you do for enjoyment? <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, what do I do for enjoyment? Um, oh my God, that, that's the tough question. Um, that was a tough, you commute to, to Mountain View. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this is going to have to pivot to an intervention. Uh, honestly, like when people say, so what do you do outside of design? Or like, what do you do when you're not working? I'm like, I don't know. Fuck. I work out and I sleep. I write JavaScript for fun, I guess. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, wow, I'm really a one-dimensional character. Yeah, I guess I am fairly one-dimensional at this point in my life, certainly. Uh, you know, I think the usual things, uh, nothing really worth mentioning. I don't think, you know, music, video games, reading, writing, uh, messing around with my dog. I have a dog and a cat. I got a wife. Uh, you know, I got a whole little cast I can you hang out with. be careful about listing those in that order, by the way. <laughs> I, 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 as soon <laughs> as I thought I was coming on here, I was like, cat how should wife. I talk about Abby while I'm on this podcast? And then I was like, Abby's never going to listen to this podcast. You don't think? No. Abby, if you're listening. Abby has good taste. <laughs> Abby does have good taste. She made one mistake, but everything else she's done really well with. That's a big mistake. It's a big mistake. <laughs> it's oh, the yeah. one that matters. It's a, it's a lifer. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, um, Instead of news, uh, I think – so I'll, I'll actually – because this is already a controversial and underthought take uh, because I wanted to share a take. I'm AKA gonna, a hot take. It's a hot take. I'm gonna, We're basically designed Twitter Live right now, right? <laughs> I'm going to heat it even further. Here's, here's what I really resent about the news. I think the news has mostly displaced vectors for knowledge that were more valuable. For example, almost anything in the liberal arts. So almost anything related to art, literature, history – 
culture, any of those types of, of content, any of that type of knowledge, right? Performances, uh, even things like movies, I think are actually an aggregate, probably more edifying and builds you towards a greater place of human compassion and, uh, you know, perceptiveness about how things function in society and, and how people's lives paths, life paths unfold. Um, I think even movies are better at that than the news. The news reminds me a lot of the types of philosophy that I didn't like in the sense that it is always extremely reductive and it's always, um, extremely obviously factually oriented which is both a benefit and a cost the benefit is that it's substantive and it's real and it's you know not like subject to thousands and thousands of interpretations the cost is that um it saps everything that's meaningful out of human life i think a lot of people read the news and actually believe that life is purely about your status your station and how much you make and i think the bulk of human history indicates that none of those things is actually that important. Like it's much more important what your relationships are like, um, how you feel about yourself, what you live for, what you care about and less to do with society and society's rewards and responses to you. So like, I'm a, I'm like a liberal arts individualist type, right. In the eighties mold. And so I always feel like, God, if I could just get people to read less news and more of almost anything else, it would be an improvement. Even like, even like Danielle Steele. That's a reference that's flying way over my head, my friend. Oh, she's like a romance novelist. She's oh, like okay. a, you know, cool. a trillion paperback romance novelist. And she like I think if you spend all of your time thinking about love and sex, it'll probably benefit you more as a human being than if you spend all of your time thinking about um, whether or not the holes in the ozone are going to make it impossible for you to go outside with your kids in 20 years. Um, that will all happen more or less without your participation. you read industry books sometimes yeah uh sometimes but not very not very frequently um so i'm i'm interested in software design more than i am um in uh for example like graphic design mm -hmm. um which is probably because i'm horrible at graphic design i'm not sure i'm any better at software design well if you read some obvious. books about it maybe you'd I like could turn this it. thing around <laughs> this is the problem i don't have that growth mindset um so uh, I read a lot of like industry histories, right? Like I really, I, I've been enjoying, uh, what's that book? I'm reading it right now. The Idea Factory, which is a history of Bell Labs. And I, I think that one of the weirdest things about our scene is that there's this uh, trajectory. Uh, David Cole, the head of design at Quora and, and my buddy, he once explained this to me, I believe. And so I hope I'm not butchering this, but basically there's this unusual trajectory where graphic design, because of the web as a layout medium when it first arrives, kind of becomes software design. So like there's a period in like the 90s and 2000s where like what is software design? Well, software design is typography, color, iconography, um, overall visual aesthetics. You have a lot of like alpha transparency everywhere and people trying to like every app looks pretty different. Um, the 90s were like a fairly wild time on the Mac. Um, and so uh, for a long time, software design just seems like it's like almost a subset or like a particular expression of graphic design, at least in the web 2.0 era. It felt that way sometimes. And I think the, un the unfortunate part of that is that a lot of us who came out here in like the 2000s never connected to this very long and super rich history of how humans have been trying to make software and hardware for a long, long time. Um, so for example, um, you know, if you read a book about, uh, you know, the early HCI people at Apple. I took a course, I took a little class with one of them, Tognazini, I think is, I, I was, I, I mispronounced his last name, but Tog. Um, listening to Tog, Tog, Tog talk uh, <laughs> probably was like, 
I don't know, getting a debrief from like 500 contemporary designers. He had already been through all of the types of things we do. And he's also been through them at a more abstract level and in like weirder, less supported environments with like much less context and no internet to Google things. And so he has like tremendous methodological insight. And he has like a lot of um, experience that's useful and he can share heuristics and ideas and inspiration and all of this. Um, and I, I often try to find that in the books that I read. So like I've been reading Idea Factory and I've really enjoyed it a lot. Um, I uh, also read a lot of books that have nothing to do with design, but to me seem to flow directly into it. So um, I could never do a podcast without a plug from my favorite all-time book, uh, The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch, which for me resolved a lot of the sort of moral and philosophical and epistemological problems of my personal life. And then also is the basis for how I undertake any kind of professional work. And I really love it. I just love the book to death. And what's that basis? Um, that the first thing you need to understand is, is knowledge. Everything is about, you know, design. People say design is problem solving. And problem solving is the process of generating the most relevant knowledge for a particular problem as quickly and inexpensively as you can or with as high a degree of confidence as possible. Um, so knowledge generation and knowledge management, which in philosophy are called epistemology, um, becomes to me like the first theoretical groundwork for design that I've ever been exposed to. I was very much in the camp of like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, I try some different stuff. I got a couple of processes and I can borrow from this pattern, but like broadly speaking, I look at it and I'm like, oh gosh, I hope this works. And then I test it. Um, Deutsch was the first person who really put me on a path where I started thinking about almost everything I do in terms of what don't I know? What do I know? How can I learn what I need to know? or falsify my current theses as quickly as possible and move on to the next. So there's an alignment between the epistemology that he shares, which is ultimately derived, I think, from Karl Popper, um, and agile and iterative methodology. So some of the stuff can seem like a little bit obvious to us, um, but a lot of like kind of the expressions of it and his extensions of it and his applications of it to different things like aesthetics, um, even even things like psychology and um uh, concepts like abstraction, uh, just tremendously empowering and useful for me. Like it really, I, I can't overstate how much I loved the book and how much it changed my life. Now I recommend it to everybody. Uh, David read it um, uh, over at Quora. We've got like half the design team reading it. It's a it. requirement now, actually, if you want to get hired. It's getting to be a requirement. Mm -hmm. It really is. It kind of makes sense for the product itself, right? Like you're passing around knowledge, you should kind of understand I it. Understand what it yeah. means for something to be knowledge. Um, I, like, I'll take a really trivial example. This is like way upstream of the type of stuff most of us ever have to think about. But um, Deutsch proposes this thing he calls, I believe, the momentous dichotomy, where he basically says the thing to understand about the universe is that every problem you can imagine is soluble unless it is the result of a law of physics. So, for example, uh, there are laws of physics that say we can't go faster than the speed of light. And there's no knowledge that will ever change that. That's just the truth. Anything else you can imagine, any other problem, it's simply a question of knowing how to solve it. And knowledge can come to you at any time. I think I, at least, had inherited a sense from, from history that, like, you know, sometimes you just had to wait a long time before something could happen. Like, mm -hmm. they couldn't have invented planes in the 1400s, right? Well, Deutsch makes this argument that actually that's really not true. Almost all of the evidence that we've needed to assemble, the physical understanding of reality that we have today, has been pouring down on Earth since the beginning of Earth. And we have these periods in human history. Uh, you know, he, I think he talks about Socrates. I think he talks about the de' Medici era in Florence, where human knowledge just like surges forward. 
And then usually it gets paused because of some kind of dark ages that result in as a result from a reaction to the knowledge and all the things that it challenges. And right now we're living in the longest sustained era of knowledge generation yet. And what this means is that we should be pretty aggressive in thinking about the problems that we want to solve and what kinds of knowledge we would need to solve them. And he includes everything in this, including the problem of death. And so in, against this framework of problem solving, right, that's sort of like the first triage as a designer that I have is, okay, is this mandated by the laws of physics? If so... I'm going to have to refer you to someone else. And if not, it's just a matter of knowing how. Now, what does it mean to know how? And and how do we actually start to, for example, de-risk the process of building something that will explore how? Um, one last trivial thing that I'll mention because a designer, Nikki, uh, who I work with, uh, said that this landed with her. Um, Deutsch talks a lot about how genes, genetics, um, are the instantiation of knowledge. So uh, a rat lives in a desert and... Um, over some number of millennia, um, some of these rats develop slightly different solutions to the problems of, let's say, moisture conservation. They develop thicker skin. Well, the genetic information for how to build thicker skin is the knowledge of how to survive in that environment. It's literally encoded knowledge for how to survive in that environment to a greater degree than the competitor rats who didn't have that skin and who didn't reproduce as well or whatever. Stupid rats. Stupid rats. <laughs> um, so in that sense, almost everything that you look at is some kind of instantiated knowledge. And as a designer, it's really fun to look around the world and think about what kinds of knowledge are embedded in everything. You know, what did we need to know about metallurgy and plastic formation and ways that things ship and how airplanes work and how transducers work and coils and electricity and how all the everything. And all of this stuff, right, is like compounding knowledge, right? It's all the fact that this microphone works the way it does has a lot to do with how that software can handle what the microphone produces and so on and so forth. And this incredible interrelated compounding effect of knowledge is literally why we think it's important to build a scalable, you know, accessible knowledge database. Um, it actually seems to matter a great deal whether we know how to do things. And they lead to new things. All this knowledge leads to new things in kind of unpredictable ways. And Deutsch is like, really, he, he writes beautifully on a lot of these subjects and themes. And um, I just found it deeply inspiring. This next clip comes from episode 225, another one from December with Zach Johnston. He is currently working on the product design systems at Dropbox. Obviously, if we had to come up with a theme for 2017, design systems would be one of them. Uh, and in this, we talk about Zach's role at Dropbox, thinking about uh, building and policing and architecting design systems. Uh, this is a, obviously a, a blossoming area of expertise for a lot of people and we've talked about it a lot and zach shares his insights and experiences doing this at dropbox so here we are from episode 225 with zach johnston what's a design system uh design system <laughs> this careful, is this is careful. the <laughs> big question yeah um for us for me i think about design systems as um well first i think about our customers so our customers are actually not so much the users who use dropbox they're um the internal folks at Dropbox. So for myself, uh, I think a lot about the people inside of Dropbox like designers, but also engineers, writers, illustrators, marketers um, that are all going to rely on this system. And I think about what does what their day-to-day -day look like? Um, what are the problems they face? For designers, it's largely uh, working in Sketch or Figma and trying to figure out, you know, what the latest component is, what I can use, what I can't use, knowing when to break rules. Um, so for me, I think about how do I build the best ecosystem for them to kind of freely explore the right product decisions while keeping on brand. That's like the crux of it, though, right? It's like, how do you 
balance policing versus being open-minded to better things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's easy to shift towards the policing side. Do you have um, a badge? I do not. I wish. <laughs> you walk up to people's <laughs> desks and shove a badge in their face. We need to have a talk. Yeah, and I, I think it, that tends to be what happens. Um, and I've been guilty of that. DVPD, uh, holy shit, product design, <laughs> not police department. <laughs> That's not bad. I'm going to get a badge of that on it now. Nice. Yeah. Please do. Um, I'd like one too, honorary. I'll give you guys one too. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll invite you guys in and you can walk around and yell at people for using the wrong color. Sounds yes. good. Sounds good. Yeah, and I think... <laughs> Sorry. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're going to tangent you uh, on this show. I don't okay, know if good. you've listened to the show before. but Of course. <laughs> okay. We're going to go wild, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think the police conversation or, or the policing dilemma is something that I've struggled with. Um, it's easy to get into this mindset of, like, people need to follow our rules, and when they don't follow the rules, they're largely kind of hurting our brand. Mm-hmm. But I think... A lot of the best work I've seen at Dropbox comes from people going off-brand or exploring new directions. Careful, you're encouraging people to leave the style guide right now. (laughs) I absolutely love it. And it's something that if you do it right, uh, people feel like they know the path to diverge, but they also know the path to come back. So they know that if uh, they break off and find something really interesting, they're not going to be off on their own island and kind of forever uh, at odds with our system but they feel comfortable coming to us and saying like this is an interesting direction how can we explore bringing it back in right um so if that means like rethinking dropbox navigation like cool go go explore that and if left it, sidebar bam left, left sidebar yeah if, if we want to <laughs> sidebar that, is seated for the rest of it. <laughs> it's just on its own yeah it's it's all open but then i think the the inverse of that is if you go too creative or if you kind of have people feeling like there is no system, then the the small decisions on the day-to-day basis uh, constantly diverge, right? So you get people who are not intentionally saying like, let's go have a different button, but they're just like, I opened up an old sketch file, pulled in a button, and next thing you know, engineer is implementing you know, a button with the wrong border radius or a slightly different color. And these aren't like important decisions or important deviations. And I think then that, that becomes the point where it's like, okay, we do need a place we do need to kind of look around our product and make sure that there aren't uh, wildly different styles or disconnected uh, brand elements throughout. Why do you think it is that designers want to reinvent every fucking thing? The deviance. I mean, having just come from the role <laughs> of a product designer, <laughs> reinventing everything. Well, no, I think it's, it's like, like no, my button's better because it has four pixels rounded corners. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I Brian. <laughs> That's true. Why do designers feel like? Uh, maybe it's like this this feeling of um, wanting to be uh, original and unique in your own space. So like, I remember just two months ago coming from a team where I was working on product design stuff, like my favorite part of the day was going off and just exploring new styles and probably why I ended up going into design <laughs> systems. Um, but every time that like Ed, one of the designers on our systems team would come to me and be like, hey, Zach, that's not the right style. I'd be like, ah, oh, damn it. Like, no. Let me explore. Um, so you sold out and joined the man. So I sold out. Um, and I like I totally respected the the point of view that this design system scene was coming from, but it always felt like uh, it was inhibiting my creativity. And so I don't I don't think I have the right answer at the moment of how do you balance the policing for, with the kind of creativity. But I, I think you're right. It's something that every designer has something inside of them where they they want to kind of push the boundary and explore something new. Um. I have a hypothesis. 
What is it? Two things. And one thing um, I think you know about. Uh, <laughs> well, you know about both of them. Uh, I think one is You're like generally where? inaccessible access to the system itself mm. or like lack of transparency into why the system is the way it is, especially for new employees. Yeah. So it's like, documentation? Absolutely. Uh, it's documentation, but it's also ease of access. Like if I'm, let's say I'm in uh, Figma and I'm in my own file, but the design system's in a different file and I have to switch between files. To, Team libraries, idiot. Yeah, yeah. But if, if you don't have that or if you're in Sketch and you don't have basically like a keyboard shortcut and then you type ahead a letter of the name of a component and hit enter you've already have too much frictions like if you have to have a separate file open or if you have to open a web browser or like anything like that the friction's too high so it's yeah. just like fuck it because you get into a flow state where you're moving so fast all right second hypothesis is uh it's like the transparency of the system it's like why should i abide by the rules that they won't even tell me why the rules exist yeah hmm so in, in that second one it's like really helping designers know why yeah. They're they're in place. And but that, that feels like, like oh that tab bar looks shitty. I bet I could do better. Yeah. <laughs> that feels a little like more specificity around the documentation Probably. part of the first hypothesis. Sure. And I also wonder if I mean you mentioned abstract, the ability for designers to see the history of a component or see the mm-hmm. the things that have been tried in the past. I wonder if that would actually reduce the amount of like people coming in and saying, you know, this tab bar is wrong. If you can see all the variations, you're like, okay, they they've tried things. It's not like yep. They just went out and yeah. decided that this should be like visualizing a timeline of components. Is yeah, certainly an interesting way to document that. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the transparency and like the historical reference. I remember when I went to Facebook is like, I'm going to come up with so many original ideas, and then you realize that there's like thousands of smart people that have thought about that for the last ten years. And Wait, then you, you start- went to Facebook to be original. No, no, no shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're like, ah, I bet I can bring in some fresh ideas, and then you realize. People thought of most things and they've like aligned on patterns for either good reasons or political reasons or yeah. Yeah. It's happened recently. <laughs> but like being able to see why is, would just be so helpful and save you a lot of, I don't know, heartache. <laughs> yeah. Especially when you guys have, well, when Facebook has like what, 800 designers now. And oh, I have no idea. It's crazy. This next clip comes from episode 183 with Kat Noon. She was in town visiting for a little while and we talked about how she, she's worked on a couple companies now and, and one of them failed and what that feels like and what you she learned from and what you can get from that and how to regroup when something fails. We've got a lot of friends who have failed in their companies before and it's a high likelihood in tech generally, especially in startups. It was really interesting to hear her perspective and talk very candidly about it. So here's Cat Noon in episode 183. What were some mistakes you made as a bootstrapping co-founder that that you would advise people to be wary of or things that they can easily avoid that that you found yourself caught in um so i think i i wish i would have really capitalized on my network more like i i had developed like such really genuine relationships with people who had reached out to me and and um you know, asked uh, if I could, you know, help them with something and, you know, made it very clear that in the event that, um, you know, I needed something to reach out to them. And and, and I didn't. Mm. I didn't, you know, there were a few, but I was always very hesitant. And I think it was this hesitance of, you know, people maybe not taking me seriously enough as a first time founder. And also the hesitance of being a female founder, you know, um, for the first time, it's just like, what does that look like to people? Um, you know, I always deep, in, deep down at the time, it was just like, yeah. 
I'm bad. I got this, you know, but at the end of the day, I really, I really didn't. Was uh, it a confidence thing? I think so. Hmm. Um, Are you rather over that? Lack, le- yeah. Yeah. I, Tell me about that. Confidence is fantastic. How did, <laughs> when did that, it's when did that new sh- thing? Confidence. <laughs> yeah. I, don't get me wrong. I, I would be completely lying to you if I said, especially now, now that I'm in the role that I'm in as the, not only founder, but CEO. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it. sure, it's my first time doing it, but that doesn't take away. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm confident doing this. There are periods of time where I'm like, man, I, I really, I need to, I need to brush up on this. I, I, I need to know more about this for it to, to benefit. But I'm, I'm more in a, I think in a position now where I'm rather than like sulking about it, I'm just like, you know, all right, well, freaking read about it, learn, do what you got to do. Um, because you know, there are people depending on me. Um, so was it that, was that the switch having people depend on you that, it's like I have to be confident, or was there something else that that helped you? Well, I think going through the reflecting on that failure was was big because I think in a lot of ways we succeeded, but at the end of the day, we did fail. We did fail, um, and I think that was, you know, going through why we failed and you know what what could we have done better. You know, was there's was there this one particular moment where you know this deciding factor where it was like that's what caused the failure no obviously not it was a, a number of events that led up to it you did a lot of things wrong all the same <laughs> sure time did. Well, sure did. Did. <laughs> a lot of things we really <laughs> fucked up <laughs> no i mean <laughs> <laughs> we weren't just bad at the one thing we, we really killed bad at it. all no obviously <laughs> <laughs> we beat the dead horse <laughs> <laughs> well, I just made myself look. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I, I know so let's mean. talk about that mean. lack of confidence. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 um, it, it could very and well be that. And after this, cat spiraled. <laughs> no, I, 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 at one point, I did. Yeah. Um, I, I doubted myself. I doubted whether or not people in the industry would, would take me seriously. Like you know, from from you guys to so many other people that I respect. It was like, what it. What does that image for them look like? What does Brian think? <laughs> <laughs> no one has ever cared that. <laughs> yeah, that would actually be really um, touching that someone cares about my opinion. You know, uh, everyone, you know, everyone in the in the design community, you know, people in tech, you know, you know, does it does it look bad that I have this one fail, you know, one failure under my belt or this wound? Yeah, yeah. No, no like one in a, tech has failures on yeah, yeah. at all. No, you're the I, only one you're the no, only one I, none of us have ever <laughs> fucked up it, it, it does it sounds so ridiculous now yeah, when yeah. you think about it yeah, yeah. um but at the time like like when i when i wrote that that post like talking about shutting down liberia holy shit it was daunting it was absolutely daunting um i mean i sat up for for nights um and uh i mean for for a long period of time after that even still now, it's still it's still is something I think about. And I'm just like, man, that was a good product. Like, Damn, that had to shut down. Well, thanks for letting us pour salt in that one. Yeah, I know. That's what we're nothing here like for. a fresh wound. <laughs> nothing with salt like a poured into salt, it. huh? Um, but it, it could I mean, very... it's just one of the few services we offer. Would you like <laughs> I know, some more? <laughs> I know. I, yeah. Now, I, now I see why you why you offered like wine or beer ahead yeah. of time. Yeah, preparing you for the saltiness. I should have accepted. Preparing for the saltiness. <laughs> Prepare you, for the salt. You salty. Um, uh, <laughs> um, no, I, it, it may very well be now that it just having people depend on me aside, you know, my team, you know, my team who I, I am 
ridiculously humbled to work with. Um, they are super talented. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's like it's this idea that I that I had and, you know, they believe in it um, and they think it should succeed. That's and crazy. And they're busting their ass yeah. um, to do that. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, they're they're not just, you know, they're users. You know, we're all users. Um, hopefully so, not often. No, hopefully not, it's, which is also a, a weird dynamic. It's just how to, yeah. you know, I'm, you know, like you and I spoke about, um, unfortunately, these scenarios happen but i'm happy that the product exists for the time period that you know the times that that it does it's a product that when turns on something bad's happened but you're thankful it's turned on regardless right right? it's like health insurance yeah yeah yeah. or your google nest protect that too that that was a (laughs) hardcore like tech dive i don't know what that is it went from health insurance Google Nest Protect, I guess. Well, it's they're both very much like these set and forget I, I products. I don't know what Google Nest Protect is. Yeah, what the, is that? What? Google Nest Protect? Oh, why did I say Google Nest Protect? Should have just said Nest. Nest, like, Protect, Nest Protect. Protect. I don't know why. But I what said is that. it? Is that the video thing? No, isn't it? Isn't there a uh, like the the um, smoke alarm? The smoke alarm. I don't ah, call yeah, it a yeah. smoke alarm. Is that what they call it? Is it protect? I don't know. It looks like a piece of bread on what? your ceiling. What? Yeah, like white bread, just like up there. You're what white weird bread are you eating? Bread. I don't eat that bread. I don't. What, what, eating white bread? Come on. I like potato bread. Yeah, I'm fine with potato bread. And uh, that's our is it episode. Not- <laughs> 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 is it? Is it really? For some for, for some reason, it's, it's Nest Protect. No, uh, it's not Nest Smoke. No, no, no. We're like Nest Carbon Monoxide. We could Google it, but that would ruin the whole. The and there's fun where of this. Google came into yeah, to yeah, play. Yeah, we could Google this. Uh, hey Siri, what's the Nest Protect called? Ling, ling. Nope. Um, Perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, right. they're both, yeah. So, I want to distill this just a little bit. So, mm-hmm. the first part was this confidence and mm-hmm. as it relates to reaching out to people, like showing your idea, getting mm-hmm. help, right? And the next part was post-failure, mm-hmm. like this self-awareness of like, what does it look like to have failed mm-hmm. from an outside pers- perspective? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what's been the most helpful for you to get through those two things? Has it been a person? Has it just been yourself and like sort of mentally regrouping? Like if someone else is experiencing that, what's a good way to get out? I imagine it, I don't know, is a slump a, a good word to... It was a slump. Yeah. Yeah, it's a slump. Um, you know, for me, I'm I'm super grateful to have a partner who is in tech who's done this before. Um, you know, so having been continually drill me and be like, this, it's it's not what you think it is it's you know it's okay it's also okay to be in a slump for a little bit um it was super helpful but at the end of the day it was me battling myself you know i was in my own head and so long as i didn't just get my shit together and realize that you know sulking was not going to to get me anywhere like i needed to you know speak with other founders and you know founders who've Mm -hmm. done this before um and realize that you know it it's okay. At the end of the day, it's okay. Um, it happens. It happens to most startups. Um, there's a chance for it to happen here again. Yeah. Uh, will I sulk if that happens? <laughs> More than likely. Yeah, probably More for than sure. Likely. Um, yeah. But still, I mean, it's, I think it's important in, in some ways to go through it. 
um, and to just figure out, wrestle with why you're, why that's happening and, and what exactly you're feeling and those lessons that are learned. And um, that's, it's bittersweet. Yeah. It's bittersweet. Yeah. yeah. But definitely, yeah, speak with, speak with founders. You know, they're there. They, they've gone through it. Like have these postmortems with them. Uh, you know, these, you know, this cemetery where, you know, where you talk about the things you've thrown into it that are dead now. Next up, we caught up with Tyler Thompson. He's a designer at Stripe. We talked to him uh, in episode 217. And Tyler has such a cool and crazy story. Uh, And this clip is about when he left his job as the creative director at Squarespace and just decided to travel and be with his family and spend some time away from tech uh, and giving up a lot of the way we think about traditional career development and progress. Uh, I thought it was inspiring and really fun to hear from him the way he thought about it and approached it and and ended up getting off the grid for a few years. Uh, So here we go, episode 217 with Tyler Thompson. I got to the point where I was in a lot of meetings all day. I wasn't making things. I sort of just, and I'm sure if I had a path and a plan and was a little uh, brighter, uh, I would, you know, be like, yeah, that's the path you take more meetings, less work, more money. The end. I don't, I don't know. That sounds terrifying. That sounds awful. (laughs) Uh, I want to still, I still want to make stuff. I still want to use my hands. I still want to, I want to, I want to do that. Um, And so there was that. And then also just, I wanted to raise my kid. Like I wanted to, I want to be wild. My kid is wild. Like, and I want him to know what that feels like to, you know, run around in the woods and break sticks and throw rocks and climb trees. And I, I don't know, all that stuff that I just felt like you got to have a little bit of. Um, and so my wife and I decided like, okay, this is a good run and everything was, is great, but let's, let's like, just, let's disappear for a while. Um, so we left, packed everything up, sold our house, sold everything, and like basically just were nomadic for a while. We just camped and uh, we like lived on a beach and and like Hawaii in a tent. We like it was so funny. Our luggage was like a cooler with a tent inside of it and like <laughs> a pillow, and wow. we just sort of just existed for a while. I didn't know anybody, anything. I didn't, I didn't have email. I did. I didn't really do anything except just focus on like soaking up inspiration. You know, it was like, uh, I was just producing and producing and producing stuff. And I wasn't actually like taking the, you know, the yin and the yang very well. Like I wasn't then sort of like taking a break and being inspired again. And my work just felt hollow. It felt sort of just like, it just didn't feel inspired. And so I was trying my best to just, take the other side of that and just go soak it up a little bit. So we nomadically roamed for a while and then ended up of all places driving cross country at some point uh, in Idaho. And so I'm from Washington state originally. And uh, for those who don't know it, they're so Idaho is close uh, enough. <laughs> yeah. Close enough. Right. Um, but it's a, uh, this little slit, the top of the state is a little sliver, the panhandle that goes up and is wedged between Washington and Montana. And it is literally, the most beautiful, like, uh, just Eden of like mountain, like snow covered mountains and crystal clear lakes and, you know, coniferous forests and stuff. It's just, it's incredible. There's also, you know, like when you get into that area, you also get into some like strange folks, you know, like some people who have literally gone to go hide from people. Uh, but, uh, luckily we found this little like liberal arts town up there, uh, on a lake, that was was really kind of progressive and and thought differently. It had a bunch of artists in it, and we 
we just went up there and just literally bought a house and just were like, okay, let's just be here for a while. We gave ourselves like three years, I think was, we're like, let's just decompress for three years and didn't know anybody, didn't know the area, didn't even like inspect the house really that well. We were just like, mm, that one there, let's just go. Let's just set down some roots uh, and like be parents and, and have a kid and do some responsible adult things. Cause at that point, like we were just, we were just all over the place. Like when we home <laughs> sleeping on the beach. Yeah. I mean, which is not to say that you have to fall in line to, to be, you know, happy or successful by any means, but uh, we homeschooled our son. So, and we traveled a lot and we just felt like, okay, it's probably time now that he has some buddies that he can like see regularly instead of being all over the place and things like that. So yeah, it's cool. This next clip comes from our 200th episode with uh, Josh Williams. We talked a lot about tying your identity work and like being known as a designer and the consequences of really building your identity on your work rather than who you are as a person beyond that. Um, this was a really interesting and kind of sobering conversation. I mean, I've certainly had my share of identity crises around what my role was and all that. And it, it really isn't who you are as a person. And I think Josh's insight here was really interesting. Uh, so here's episode 200 with Josh Williams. But we don't know how to make money off of it yet, which well, makes it harder to build a business on. That's right. And there's also the case with with the iPhone and then quickly Android after that. It was obvious, like instantly obvious that everybody is going to have one of these. There's mm-hmm. no – the utility was so high that there is no denying that everyone is going to have this thing in their pocket within, you know, uh, two years. Mm-hmm. And – I don't think that obviousness exists with any of these other things yet. There's, well, know. I mean, we're, we're in like the Palm Pilot phase or something like that, right? That, like, that's right. That's what it feels like. pretty good, but it's not yeah, anywhere near good enough. Like, uh, you know, wake me up again in, in five or seven years yeah. and we'll see what happens. But, you know, and that for me, it's interesting because I think that's one of the reasons why I feel okay going back and just kind of to my roots in so many ways because – it feels like a good time to do that. Um, I can participate lightly and kind of keep tabs on it all, but also not, not feel like, Oh, I've got to find the next big thing. Um, because that pressure is just not there. Mm -hmm. And and frankly, it's kind of nice. It's been nice not to feel like my identity's, um, tied up in that for a while. So let's talk uh, about that. You felt like your before you felt like your identity was tied up in that. I think when you're um in design? I no, I think it's just in the like the startup the, the start the startup the startup industry. Um and again, I think for me, um I never woke up one day like, oh yeah, I wanna I wanna be in Silicon Valley. That's what uh-huh. I, that's what I want. I know to. that feeling. <laughs> um it, it was like we kind of literally we just accidentally ended up there. It was just a design studio. Now we're building stuff, and some of the stuff turned out to be cool. And then there's a lot of attention, and a lot of hype, and next thing you know, like you're you're the cool kid at the party, uh-huh. and you're throwing parties at South by Southwest, and like Diplo showed up. Like Diplo <laughs> fucking played at my party, and that's like cool. in 2010, like that's not that's not normal. Uh-huh. Um, so, so you have like stuff like that happen and yeah, it, it, there's a little bit of, oh, you know, are you going to keep that up? Um, are you going to keep building something awesome? And, you know, at some point there's that realization of like, well, you know, I have to decide what's, what's important with, you know, with my time or my health or, or whatever. And, and then you, 
you once you do take a little bit of a step back, there is this realization like, oh, like the world does go on hmm. and that's okay. Yeah. And it's actually great. Like it's it's kind of nice. Like nothing broke. I realize <laughs> that anytime I like go home or step outside of this 10 mile radius is that's like- right. Most people don't really give a shit about what we're doing. That's absolutely, that's <laughs> absolutely right. And I think that's the one thing that this place does have a way of just kind of that's crazy um, getting you onto that treadmill and making you feel like, oh, if I, if I, if I stop, then I'll never be able to recover. But and have you ever people felt aren't, that way? People aren't supposed to until you hit enough scale. Like the goal is to make them care eventually, right? Yeah. Like Facebook yeah, yeah. exists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, edge case, right? <laughs> yes that's how that works <laughs> but like uh, we want to get to that point yeah, yeah. It, just because they don't care about all the tiny little companies doesn't mean it's like no totally bad. Yeah, yeah no it's definitely not bad um, i think that's why it works is like we're surrounded by people that are like so insanely optimistic about mm -hmm. the prospects of each of our own little things mm -hmm. I, I think it just um I think this is probably true with like any industry, whether it's, you know, tech here or like the film industry in LA or the music industry in Nashville. Like you, you do get to this place of like, oh, this is, this is the most important thing happening in the world ever. Like, and there cool. must be, there must be like indie musician Twitter drama happening in Nashville where it's like I, 200 <laughs> people that have like one person made one tweet and then everyone subtweeted and it became like a big deal about should like musicians code. Should musicians, damn it. Should no, musicians I, handwrite music like, I, I, I want to believe that because it made <laughs> me feel better about our own right? industry. Like, least, like, least tells that we're not the only ones that are like making funny arguments. Crazy. <laughs> um, no, that, that that's right, and it's um, you know, I, I think that it's Silicon Valley's put designers in an interesting place over the past couple of years because. Um, you had companies like Facebook that all of a sudden said, Hey, like we're going to prioritize design and we're going to, you know, hire the best ones and we're going to drink everybody's milkshake and, and bring, you know, bring all these hire people. strategically so no one else can hire them. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and then Dropbox kind of upped the ante on, on them a little bit. And, and you, there was this run on, on designer, you know, talent, um, somewhat like not even really knowing like what you know, what we're going to do with mm -hmm. all these amazing people, but just like, let's, let's gobble them up. So the next company doesn't have them. And, and it was good for How did <laughs> Airbnb is doing the same thing right no, now. Yeah. And, and yeah. it kind of goes from one to the next to the next. And, and, and one sense, like it was good in that it raised, you know, awareness of what designers are doing or like what their function is or, or the type of services that they're providing. But on, on the other hand, when people care enough to make that defensive play in a given like field, yeah, that, yeah. that's super valuable to that field. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, um, on the flip side, I think it, it happened so quickly, you know, to design that, at least for my part, it feels like, um, there are a lot of people who, got into it because it was an industry and not because they loved it. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's what's been interesting to watch as like an observer is like, I never became a designer because I thought of it as a job. Like mm -hmm. I, it purely was a hobby and I did it because it was fun. And then it just turned out that like it worked out that there was a job there. And I, yep. and I, you find that from other people too, that, they backed into design because they were a musician and they needed to build a website for themselves. Or like in Keegan's case, it was like, oh, I, 
I skateboard and I want to upload my skateboard videos to the internet, but I, you know, how do I do that? And in the process, like answering those questions, you find this love for this other thing. And, and, and then it turns out, oh, there's a, there's a job there. And now I feel like, um, because of the attention, it's just on the outside. It's like, oh, it is a job. You, you can go to, you know, a number of great schools and, and learn to do these things and go, um, get a paycheck from one of these great companies that's, more than frankly like any graphic designer 20 years ago would have ever dreamed of mm-hmm. making and so i think that has definitely like has stressed like the industry and i think that's even probably some of the um the tension that exists between like designers that are outside the valley and designers who are in the valleys there's a lot of people that are like i'm just doing this cuz this is my job and I, and I look at like this one city that's turned it into, you know, kind of a, like a cog industry and they, t- they feel like two very different sides of the same coin. And oftentimes it's like difficult to understand the other side. Hmm. Where would you fall? Uh, I've done both. Yeah. Um, so, you know, honestly, like right now I feel like, um, I started as an outsider and I spent some time on the inside and. I'd probably happily flip back to the outside and 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 be content, you know. Um It's an interesting place to be though. I I I, I that said, um I, I spent time at Facebook and and um I learned a lot while I was there. I have a ton of respect for the people that I worked with while I was there. And I and I don't share the same But like, not as much as the second grade teacher. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I um next I, level. I, I respect the second grade teachers very, very highly. Um but I don't have a lot of I don't share a lot of the same like angst over the oh designers at Facebook have sold their soul. <laughs> I, I don't I don't have that perspective. I mean, where does that come from? Is that like the copying Snapchat stuff? I think that's, I mean, that's part of it is certainly the, um, uh, oh yeah, Instagram, like these designers are, aren't thinking for themselves. They just went and took this thing, you know, that somebody else had done and, and how can they sleep at night because they've lifted this, you know, product. And there's a, there's, I mean, honestly, there's a million different ways to look at this issue and you can make arguments from both sides. And like, there's, there's actually, there's validity on all the sides. And at the end, you know, for me, when I, when I look at it, um, you know, there's, it's, it's business. And I think that's one thing you kind of have to come, to, you know, either come to terms with or comes to come to peace with or come to Jesus with whatever you got to do is, is that there is a, there is a business out here and, um, people are getting paid and, and Snapchat's not a, um, uh, it's not some, it's not two guys in a closet doing this, like as a passion project, it was like a funded with billions of dollars of, of venture capital and, uh, by a guy who was already driving a Ferrari before he started <laughs> the company. Um, yeah. And, and for all the great that they did, like it was set up as a business and they were, you know, Facebook came along years ago and said, Hey, we'd like to buy you for billions of dollars. And they said, no. And at that point, I think it's like, okay, game on. (laughs) And, and, you know, I think that's where it's like, well, um, everyone's made their intentions clear. And, and, and that, and that particular scenario, um, one company said, we think what you have is interesting. We'd like to pay you an ungodly amount of money for it. 
And the other company has said, no, thanks. We're going to go it on our own, um, presumably because we're going to topple you someday. At that point, it's like, it's game on. It's, it's business. And people on both sides are making decisions to, you know, try to win. Um, you can, you can sit back and say, I don't want to be a designer in that environment. And I think that's an entirely valid, I think that's an entirely valid decision to make. But I think it's, I do not stand in judgment of somebody who said, I want to go play that game and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do it. All right. Next up, episode 224, we caught up with Cortland Allen. He is the founder of Indie Hackers, which got acquired by Stripe. And in this, we talked about making money in startups and side projects versus going the big company route and how he prioritized what he wanted to learn in his life and how that culminated in him building Indie Hackers, which uh, eventually was acquired by Stripe. This was a great episode uh, with Cortland, episode 224. Uh, we'll jump in now, talking about making money in startups. And I kind of did the calculus and said, it doesn't make any sense for me to continue doing this. Like, I don't think we're going to succeed. And if you're working on something that's taking up all of your life and you're making sacrifices to your friendships and relationships, et cetera, to do that, and you don't think it's going to work out, suddenly it becomes very enticing to, to stop. And so I, I told Nick that, hey, this is the end of, of my time working on what we're doing and I'm going to go my own way. And I think he paid me to help kind of transition things as a contractor. He was my first contracting <laughs> client. Sweet gig. Nice. Yeah, yeah. And I just spent the next couple of years. Did you charge just, him more than what you're getting paid? No, actually. Okay. The rate that he paid me, I was like, this is a solid rate. I think I'm going to charge everybody. This. Okay. <laughs> so that's what I did for a couple of years. Nice. Um, one thing that comes up is most people who start startups could be making more money elsewhere, mm -hmm. but they don't care because they have some belief in some other thing. Like it's a like a fanatical belief in yeah, their success. Like how, how did you think about that? Because you do have a skill set where you could go work at a, a Google or a Facebook and make buku bucks, but maybe there's something well, what just I did more appealing to you. When I saw a forum thread online about people discussing their salaries at Google and Facebook, I would ignore it. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to know it's yeah, true. <laughs> I don't want to see it. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. But also like I've just always put a high premium on freedom and freedom in every sense of the word, like freedom to work whatever hours I want, even if it's more hours than normal, freedom to work from wherever I want on whatever project that I want. Um, financial freedom, the ability for the money that I make as a result of my work to be commensurate with the work that I put in versus working for a company where there's sort of a cap and you could be the world's most badass employee, but your salary needs to fit within a specified range. So I think even though the the promise of more money by getting a normal job was always there, I knew that I would get bored and upset by living that sort of life. And I would rather sort of struggle and and if that meant that I could have more freedom and, and get the ability to work on whatever I wanted. And so for you, that looked like contracting. For me, contracting was a compromise because with contracting, I was still working on other people's projects, but at the very least, I could set my own schedule. I was a remote contractor, so I would work from home. And I was always just working on other projects on the side and, and improving my skill sets and just doing whatever it was that interested me. So I kind of rationalized to myself, okay, I'm working for other people, but at the very least I've got a semblance of freedom. And whenever I want to <laughs> I have the illusion of freedom. Yeah, I've got the illusion of freedom <laughs> and I can set my own schedule and yeah. whenever I want to, I can just stop and do yeah. something else. I think that was really the ideal job for me. And it if I hadn't done contracting, if I had just gotten a normal full time job, I'm not sure I ever would have started ND hackers or ever quit that full time job. Yeah. 
Uh, it's funny. Like that's one of the reasons that I ended up doing what we're doing now. Like we're mm-hmm. doing a startup and I left Facebook and the question is like, well, like how is it leaving Facebook? Do you work more? Do you work less? And it's like work more, more. work harder. Yeah. It's more stressful, uh-huh. but it's my own. Like it's self-induced <laughs> because I believe in the thing, not because were people Other at Facebook forces. supportive of you leaving, or how did? Yeah. did they look at you like you had two heads? Or, yeah, no. there was a there was a little of that. No, nah, mostly. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I saw quite a bit of it. It's interesting in in tech circles because it's so common for people to leave and start startups, but at mm-hmm. the same time, you have like these really good careers at these bigger companies, mm-hmm. and so it's it's interesting to see which people are like, oh yeah, of course you're going to leave to start your own thing. I'm thinking about the same thing. Other people who can't even imagine leaving you know the corporate world and their cushy job yeah i think in my experience people are like people i've talked to and had real conversations with Uh are like secretly jealous of like (laughs) being able to do that i guess like it's Mm -hmm. it's in a position of good fortune and and privilege that we can even have this conversation like oh yeah just work on my own shit have this freedom yeah it's Uh, it's it's really enticing i think it's probably more enticing from the outside looking in yeah because yeah <laughs> yeah no one sees the drudge work they just uh-huh. they just see the good parts like oh you're free and you're doing your own thing and you don't have a boss yeah what's that and then like you're like well yeah but i debugged an infinite loop somewhere in the code for eight hours today so who <laughs> <laughs> really had a better day yeah exactly <laughs> yeah and, and you acclimate to whatever it is that you're doing as well so you know the i think the initial excitement of going from a full-time job to doing your own thing is probably massive totally like a year later totally. you're just like yeah this is just normal life yeah when you went to contracting, uh, you said you wanted to pick up other skills or learn learn new stuff. Mm-hmm. And I found that for me, when I have that opportunity, it's like, all right, I got some time. I'm going to go learn a thing. There's so many things, and I have no idea what to choose. Yeah. So I end up just like kind of haphazardly like, oh, this technology seems interesting, or mm-hmm. maybe I'll look into this language or something like that. I had did a you list. have a you had a, yeah? How did you prioritize? Like, come up with what was most interesting and what you wanted to invest in learning it was almost all programming stuff because as i was coding this app like the code base got bigger and larger and for anybody out there who's like a front-end developer you're well aware that the speed at which things move is like extremely rapid every day there's a new framework or a new technique or a new way of doing things mm-hmm. yeah and so i'm watching like life pass me by and i see all these cool new toys and things that i as a programmer wish i could use but at the same time, I have this business with all sorts of demands and I'm trying to make it succeed. And I don't have time to just play around with like fun new programming tools. So I, by the time I quit, had a list a mile long of things I wanted to try. And I just did, like I used all of them to build like the most rink-eating projects. I didn't even care. I just wanted to try them sure. and see what it was that I was missing out on. What was at the top of your list? <sighs> React, Angular, yeah. <laughs> Ember. <laughs> just a ton of like front end. want to do the same thing three different ways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, which one is which one? One of these is the best. So I, uh, which JavaScript is best? Yeah, and uh, honestly, there it doesn't even matter. It's just <laughs> your own personal style. But uh, I was pretty excited to try all those different things. I was excited to try eventually a new startup. Like I knew the contracting wasn't going to be permanent, but I was kind of burned out, and I had spent like four, I think, four years of my life just working like insane hours and not really living life. Mm-hmm. And if you work crazy hours, especially if you're devoted to a startup, it's really easy to neglect other things. Uh-huh. And the thing that really irked me the most was, like, you guys have heard of, like, the flow state. You get into the state of, like, yep. just in the zone. All you, like, all you see is the code or all you see is the design. And time passes super fast. For me, the flow state was a double-edged sword because I would be super productive all day. But then you don't really make new memories. 
You know, like what happened last Thursday? I don't know. I just coded. What happened in 2014? I don't know. I just, <laughs> I just coded. Every all, day was all the same. my days since then have blurred together. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly what it was like. And I was like, you know, what? you can only be like 24 once, and I don't want my memory of nope. 24 to be <laughs> just the computer monitor, yeah. and that's it. So. I really wanted to take a break, like meet people, make new memories, and enjoy my 20s besides just working all the time on the same things. Uh, And then maybe later get back to it. This next clip comes from episode 192 with Joel Khalifa. uh, And just kind of talking about how we work through anxiety and ambiguity in a problem space and like how to solve a thing that you don't necessarily have pinned down well. I think it's a really interesting conversation to have, and Joel's certainly built up a pretty strong method of talking about anxiety generally. So here's episode 192 with Joel Khalifa. I think everyone like has some levels of anxiety of just like, what am I? Um, what what should I be doing? Where should I be growing? Am, am I doing the right thing? It, it's like a counterpoint to like being okay with ambiguity, right? Like it's just like struggling with where to go. Yeah. I mean, even if you're okay with ambiguity, it's like, what do you do with it? So you have to, you have, it's like designers live in vagueness, right? And it's just like, figure out this amorphous blob, um, but you still have to figure it out. You can't just stay there and be like, but I like this amorphous blob. (laughs) This this blob is cozy as fuck. That's the point that gets to me is it's looking around and feeling like I should be doing stuff. Like I should be learning how to do X or I should be growing in, I, I should be prototyping all the time or I should be coding or I should be making a, like, icons or I should be doing the eight point grid, like should, 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 should. And we're surrounded Is by this. Is eight point all the- grid a discipline? <laughs> yes. I have it on my CV. <laughs> eight point I'm a grid. I'm a full stack eight point gridder. <laughs> stole fact. Stole fact. Uh, no, uh, that's for me is I feel like I'm surrounded by should be, should be, should be. And at some point I said, Fuck it. And quit <laughs> quit my job and I worked on what I wanted to work you on. You are the most pragmatic designer I've ever met. Thanks, dude. You just figure out the way to ship a thing. And I think that's like the right way to go. But, but it's hard to... S- separate point is like being surrounded by people saying or asking, what should we be doing? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really good point. And I think... And I actually like ironically have have a part of the talk the conference talk that i do um with the same name (laughs) um that focuses on that on like why are you focusing on should so much just do like what makes you happy as cliche as that is um i do think it's important to for you to just be like oh i i am tired of should i do all these things because things change in design so frequently Mm -hmm. um can i just do what i like and and I think I think in a sense that's kind of a charmed life. Like what you yeah. what you two are doing is is really amazing and lucky. Yes, yes. <laughs> Privilege, we're, we're lucky. fortunate. Yes. Privileged yeah. is a, a way to put it. Yeah. Um. Not not everyone has that. That's I think right. not that's everyone right. can be like you know I'm I'm gonna leave my job at Facebook, um, and focus on this. Like not everyone even has an idea for what they want to do or has like an entrepreneurial kind of gut instinct. Sure. Um. But yeah, but I, I do think there is a way for everyone to be like, okay, let me put this aside and think about what makes me happy and find that in their job and like craft um, a place for themselves. This next clip comes from Kevin Smith, episode 194. 
and he just talks a little bit about what makes for great designers to work with. He works at Abstract with a couple designers that you probably know well, uh, Josh Brewer, Tim Van Dam, and talking about what makes them awesome to work with, I think is a really interesting conversation. It's something we talk about a lot is how designers and developers work together. Uh, Kevin's got a pretty nice perspective here on what makes his coworkers so great to work with and kind of generalized principles about what makes designers great to work with. So here's episode 194 with Kevin Smith. Given your experience, what what does that mean to be a great designer? Like, what is it about these people that makes them great? Whether it's great to work with or their output, or dad something buns. else. Oh, yeah, man. Dad. I should I should preface that. That's what dad, dad, that's what that's man. what Tim calls his man bun. Is a dad bun. His dad, dad bun. bun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should definitely preface that. <laughs> Just dad buns. That's a really good question. Um, I think a few things come to mind though, like. Really great designers, um, in some ways, are, are like really great engineers that I've known. Um, there's there's an obvious like skill component to it, particularly when you talk about visual design, right? Like, you look at some of the the designs that that Tim comes out with, and they're just visually excellent, right? There's a there's a skill component there, but they're also insatiably like curious about like how to build in this category UI interfaces to like help people do things right and but also really good at it um and i think both both the guys that i get to work with ha- have actually both those categories or both those ca- characteristics but um i think it's the curiosity the most so for those who don't know this is Josh Brewer and Tim Vendel oh sorry yeah. <laughs> um yeah, insane curiosity, but also like they care a lot about the user, right? Like I've I've worked with designers in the past that will think that their output of something visual, it might look great, but actually be a bad experience for an end user, like might be difficult to use. It might actually look stunning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't, we're not just painting pictures, right? Um, what? So, I, I know. I'm doing it all wrong. <laughs> Hang on, this is so, news. So Tim, for instance, uh, his curiosity and combined with wanting to make a really great experience for end users naturally leads him towards things like contributing to our React components, right? So he learns HTML, he learns CSS, he learns how to do React, he bugs the engineers to like run the application to like fix it and make it better. Right. So this final clip comes from episode 210 with Jules Forrest. This was coming off her recently created project, Women Who Design. And we talked about what it was like starting that, why, how, what it took to launch it, and some of her next steps. Uh, I thought it was an awesome story about how one tweet can trigger this entire downstream effect of people building side projects and bringing a ton of attention to some really, really wonderful people in the industry. Uh, So let's jump into episode 210 with Jules Forrest. And somewhere along the way, uh, Helen Tran tweeted a thing on the internet. Yes. Yeah. That did happen. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, Helen Tran, who I think has Mm -hmm. been on the show. Yes. I've listened to her. Shout out, Helen. Hi, Helen. That was Um, one of the weirdest 
funniest episodes we've <laughs> yeah. ever done i think it was uh, yes. butthole grandma that was <laughs> yep. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes yes you've Solid listened days. yes um yeah so she tweeted something and i think it was april or may and she said i want you to name five designers that are value five women designers who i you think are valuable to this industry um and the thread got i actually like counted this up at one point i think it got like 300 responses that generated like 600 names because like mm-hmm. some people named the same person whatever my following count went up 200 that day yeah like, <laughs> it was nuts yeah so um a bunch of people were joking around like oh like this is a great thread to recruit from and uh cap watkins who's vp of design at buzzfeed was like uh this woman, this woman, this woman, this woman, but I have a whole list. I'm not going to like say the whole thing because I'm trying to recruit over mm-hmm. here. Um, and Helen made some joke that was like, oh man, like me too. Like don't steal my idea uh, or something to that effect. And like people were jumping in like, oh yeah, great place to recruit from. And I was like, well, like what if I wanted to work for a woman in design? Mm-hmm. Um, like where are those lists? And then I had this realization that like, most people, not most people, but a fair number of the people who are being named have some sort of like career identifier in their Twitter bios. So I realized like if I could just like take this list and sort through it, I could like find women who I said they were design managers or VPs of design. If only um, there was some technology to quickly iterate through a list of items. <laughs> exactly. Um, so um, I wrote down all the names manually and by manually <laughs> i mean like i type them into excel yeah, yeah um and that's like the number one question i get it's like but how did you parse the names and i was like that would have taken so long yeah. to like write a script to like weed out every time you were mentioning someone because you were nominating them not because like you were just talking to them and right. all that kind of stuff and i ran it through the twitter api so that i could like plot everyone's profile data and i put it up in a twitter profile directory that I call women who design and there's a list of common filters on the left, like developer, product designer, manager, um, that kind of thing. And so you click on director, you can see all of the women who have been nominated who call themselves a director. And that URL is women who dot dot design. design. <laughs> yes. It was originally going to be women in design, women in design.com and women in dot design. Those URLs were all taken. So it became women who dot design. Who's stealing those domains from you? Right? I tell you what. It's like, what are we doing? So you built this thing. Yes. Just because you felt like it would be valuable. Yeah. I think like there are a lot of people out there probably who like want to find more interesting people to follow on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, especially like women want to see like other women who are doing things because I think representation is important. So um, like, it's cool when you see someone like you doing the thing that you might want to do one day. Um, And then I think it's also cool for people who aren't women because sometimes like you don't know that you don't know a lot of women or that you're like not following a lot of women. And um, I think there's value for everyone in like having more people, but especially people that you're interested in what they have to say specifically. So um, like, you know, if you're not into illustration, like don't go follow a bunch of like women illustrators just so that you can be following more women on Twitter. Like, you know, you're a developer, like 
find the developers. Although they're um, also illustrators are the best people to follow on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> it makes your timeline much happier. Yeah. Especially if you're in design Twitter. Yeah. yeah. So I thought like, um, like being able to filter was kind of like a powerful thing in terms of like, like no one wants their timeline to be like full of people like talking about stuff that isn't relevant to them yeah. um, necessarily. So and what, at least when it comes to work stuff. What was the hardest part of building this? A mobile menu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, the unsolved like, problem of our generation. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, oh man, like this is not an interesting answer, but like when you, when you have it open on mobile and you want, uh-huh. when you want to close it, it's like not intuitive to press the menu button again. Cause it's like all the way up in the corner. So you like people just like tap outside it and then like making it so that when you tapped outside the mobile menu, you weren't like clicking on the link of like whatever was actually there. Yeah. Um, Got to put an overlay in that just yeah, accepts a click. And yeah. Like, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Mm. And you wrote all the code mm-hmm. yeah. and you launched it. I launched it. It happened. How's the response? Uh, way bigger yeah. <laughs> than I thought. Um, I'd always been like solidly a Twitter lurker, like not, not really an active participant. Mm. And so it got picked up a little bit and. My friend like, Carmel wrote a piece about it. Yeah, she did. On the Figma blog. Uh, that was really cool. Um, but I was not prepared for the level of traffic. So it crashed like pretty much immediately. Solid. <laughs> yeah. Like, success. Um, that's Yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. What'd so, you deploy it on? Uh, Firebase. So I had to just like give yeah, Google sh- my credit card and be like, the charge uh-huh. me as you see fit for the traffic or uh-huh. volume that I'm getting. Um, so that was really cool. And um, hopefully like people have found value out of it. There's also like a section for submissions and I got way more submissions than I can handle. So I'm actually working on rewriting it right now um, in a way that will support like all these new people who've been nominated. Um, But I was traveling for a little bit, so I've been on hold, (laughs) but that's what I was doing yesterday. Actually, I was like working on the new version, which I'm writing in react. So nice. Nice. It's a little slow. React is no react. So, yeah. All right. That's it for episode three of our year end recap. That's episode 232. We hope you enjoyed it. If you've been a longtime listener, hopefully this recap was fun to go back and, and hear from some of the folks we had on this year. It certainly was for us. It certainly <laughs> was for us. Uh, and if you're new to the show, uh, hopefully this was a nice intro into the kinds of conversations we have and the, the people we have conversations with. Uh, so thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more full episodes, of course, those live at spec.fm. And you can check out uh, all of our design details episodes as well as more podcasts that we have on the network for designers and developers just like you. Before we go, we want to thank our sponsor for this episode, and that's Reactor. Reactor is a product design nope, studio. Nope, they're a satellite company that also does product design. That's right. Uh, they launched satellites, and they just happened to fund it by building really great product and design experiences for uh, some of the best and innov- most innovative companies in the world, and they want you to join them. So they have offices pretty much in every city, I think. I think it's safe to Literally say. Literally every city. It looks city. like about like 10 on their website, but Grand I'm pretty Rapids, sure it's every city. They got an office. Turku, they, they got, got an, an office. office. I don't know if that's how you pronounce that. They're looking for product designers generally. People who want to make products. People who do good design work. It doesn't matter what the role is. They're just looking for you. 
Yeah, they they want people who are ambitious and excited about hard challenges. So go talk to them uh, and talk to them about what your dream role would be uh, as as a product thinker, as a designer, as someone who lives on satellites, as someone who wants to go to space. You can do that at reactor.com slash careers. Again, that's reactor with a K dot com slash careers. Thanks so much, Reactor. We'll see you next week with our final episode of our 2017 Roundup. Welcome to episode 195 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. I've been waiting for this moment. Thank you for saving that clip, Sarah. Oh, my life. And I'm Brian Levin. (laughs) What? Oh, my life. And I'm Brian Levin.